Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barplay, and this is being recorded live on Skype, September 18th, 2021. Model Rail Radio is the internet's only live recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. I promised last recording that I would finish the conversation with Mike O'Dorney. I'd like to welcome on Mike O'Dorney. Mike, a- apologies for the last recording. As husband, father duties tend to call at the unopportune moment, I did want to have the opportunity to chat with you about the project that you and Clark Cooning have, have started associated with Structure Kit, um, because I don't think we, okay, we, yeah, we uh, gave it the full treatment. Have there been any changes since we last spoke? Uh, um, no, no, no apologies needed, but to make things clear, um, Clark Cooning is doing one on his own and I'm doing a different one. So there's actually two projects going on here and I realized how things get busy when you have, you know, two babies to take care of to, and to step back even further, um, you made a reference to the demographics in the Bay area being different. I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that a lot of the models here are working places like Apple and Google and Facebook and mm. all those where they don't have a whole lot of spare time. No. It comes in small pieces. So some kind of modeling that fits that paradigm is, you know, something to be looking at. But it is but interesting that you picked Bar Mills because I think Bar Mills has a number of small kit offerings, which collectively, maybe three or four of these small kits are exactly perfectly pitched for the people of the Bay Area lifestyles. Now, I was thinking also about Dave Falkenberg's projects. A lot of Dave Falkenberg's projects are almost like Bar Mills projects. The dock, for example, a lot of repetition can be done over time, can be walked away from and returned to relatively easily. So has this promoted any thinking in, on your side with regards to the, the specific demographic needs of the Bay Area? Well, uh, that is a good point because it's nice to build a model where when you put it down and you pick it back up, there's enough repetition in the model that you can remember where you left off and remember what particular thing you were doing, as opposed to a model where you have 27 different windows. And you have to think, well, where does window 56 go? But to be clear, Bar Mills is attractive to me because of the help from the people at Bar Mills. In other words, the staff is is very, very congenial staff. They're very, Mm -hmm. very much the kind of people to to help you build. The reason I picked that Bar Mills kit was that the... uh, southeast region the piedmont division was doing a build and they said if you if you buy the kit this gentleman from bar mills will help you build it and lo and behold 15 of us bought the kit which i'm sure he was very happy to sell 15 kits Mm -hmm. and he forthwith spent the saturday and taped it so it came out good interesting but you're right my objective is to have a kit that is complex enough that it is likely to get a merit award for the achievement program Mm. so that was my primary objective and some of the kits are too simple Mm -hmm. and some of them are too expensive i'm at the point where i'm trying to think what is the best way to have people get involved in the achievement program in the least you know the least i would say threatening Mm. or the most (laughs) user-friendly fashion yes it's not i mean well first of all one of the best things you can do is to go to a regional convention and be a judge Mm. And if you have anything more than opposing thumbs, they will (laughs) gladly include you. Um, Uh Judging takes a lot of time. It takes about 18 to 21 people half the day. Mm. uh, Two of the areas in the judging take up so much time that that particular team 
takes about eight hours to do mm. the judging. So it's nice for the, the judging team to split it in half. And uh, so if you have, like, I think it's details and scratch building or something like that. Those two, two of the areas mm. take up a lot of time because you basically, you're basically counting things on the module, which takes a lot. Surprisingly, it takes a lot of time. So if you split that into two teams or if you take a third team and have it have it do details in the morning and scratch building in the afternoon or whoever, however which one takes up the most time, mm. you can cut down the workload on the team because 21 would be nice. 21 people would be nice. 18 is really doable. So if you volunteer, you will pick up judging real fast. Mm. Once you get into about the fourth model, you'll have a sense to what is eight points, what is 11 points because you will be matched the team's poll people and say who's experienced who's intermediate and who's a rookie mm. and you will be on a team with one rookie and one experienced guy and the guy in the middle will either be experienced or intermediate mm. so uh and i've done four or five contests so i think i'm going to be considered intermediate mm. the next one i do you learn a lot about modeling when you judge it's just a it's so many ideas come from the other two guys and so it's amazing just two guys will give you so many ideas. So. Did I talk to you about my experience at the Narrow Gauge Convention about judging? I can't remember whether it was you or Clark Cooning. I think it might have been Clark Cooning. I went to the Narrow Gauge oh. Convention, as you well know. We were supposed to meet for dinner, and I still hold it against you that I waited for uh, an hour and a half for you to walk through those doors, but you didn't arrive, alas. Anyway, uh, Narrow Gauge Convention, I spent about 90 minutes in the modelling room completely... And it was really quite an emotional experience, completely overwhelmed with just the amazing modeling that I was seeing. And I thought, how on earth could you be a judge in this environment? Now, I do understand, you know, obviously they have parameters and I also have some background interest in, in modeling, although it's, it's more military figure modeling. Just looking at some of these models and just the level of detail, level of expertise and just the decisions that have been made by the model creator at every turn to represent something and to you know go easier on certain aspects here and these kind of things. What role do I play in judgment with regards to these people's well, amazing work? Anyway, what's your well, thoughts? I would say, well, well, first of all, I was not aware you were waiting for me for lunch. I was having difficulty getting a hold of the committee doing, this is the one in Sacramento last this uh, is, year yes, or two ago. Yes, yes. Yes. And I had actually prepared a clinic on a narrow gauge railroad mm. in Iowa. Uh, I was attempting to get a hold of the people running the convention because they mm. had scheduled a uh, trip, a prototype tour to a steam powered sawmill. Mm. And uh, I was trying to get a, to get a, a ticket for that. I mean, it's obviously you pay for the bus, although it's rather unique in that um, you could literally show up to the sawmill. And instead of paying them the amount of money for the admission, you could give them the equivalent amount of money in used fuel oil, because that's mm. what they run the sawmill with, mm. and that's what your money goes for. So Certainly. if you showed up with a 55-gallon drum yeah. of oil that you got at a, at a Jiffy Lube, they'd be happy as a clam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think we've, we've, we've talked about this pretty well ad nauseum. I was hoping to have a number of conversations with you. I think also you ticked the box on the Facebook group saying that you would be in attendance as well which I used in any case. All has been forgiven, Mike O'Doherty. This is far too long okay. to draw judgments on that. Aside from the fact that I really miss the opportunity of having a good conversation with you, as is the case whenever we do meet in the real world as well. That being I, said... That being said, um, I mean, how would I, a rookie, even an intermediate rookie, mm. um, a rookie with a capital R, yes. be a good judge? Yes. Well, 
you will pick up the parameters and the techniques of the other modelers. And within about 10 models, as good as those people are, there are differences from one to the other. Without question. Some will be, Without question. Some will be better at craftsmanship, some will be better at lighting, some will be better at details. So you will basically be, you know, seeing differences. The second thing is you're a judge. You're judging one model at a time. Mm-hmm. And if you've got a room, if you've got a room with 120 point models, yes. you've got a room with 120 point models. There's nothing wrong with handing out points liberally if they're warranted. I mean, you go to the Indianapolis 500 and you look at the time trials and the fastest guy and the slowest guy differ by, you know, going around the track by 12 seconds. Certainly. I mean, they all could win. So, I mean, it's But sometimes it's to be there's a- artistic choice in there as well. I mean, I think that was the thing that really caught me was I thought some of the models were lacking in certain areas, but then I thought this is an experienced model maker who has probably made the choice not to use high contrast in this particular case or to emphasize the wood. I think that's where it becomes very interesting that they may have the skills to do what you perceive as being lacking, but they may have just made the artistic choice not to do it that way in order to emphasize other things. Or I mean, it really kind of perplexed me. I, can make a relatively fast judgment call on a you know a toy soldier that's been painted and you put you know five of them you can rank them in hierarchy you can see very quickly if the artist doesn't have the ability to use a skill that you perceive that they need but some of these things in particular contrast choices i was very heavily aware that i thought the artists had made that choice for a particular reason now obviously they come with notes the notes don't necessarily go into that level of detail but I got the sense that these were, in terms of skill level, very similar. There were 10 models that I oh, yeah. couldn't see any strengths and weaknesses of them basically leveled out. And I was really just humbled to be in the presence of a model of that quality. When I first saw a Scotty Mason water tank, for example, on a fellow's layout, I was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, you hear Scotty Mason in a podcast, he's a relatively jovial fellow. You know, you get a sense of him as a person, but it's not until you actually see his model making that you really understand why he's Scotty Mason. Yes, exactly. Well, I, I think that, as you know, you go into a, a war gamer or a military modeling environment, a lot of these droids and orcs and goblins and, and uh, zombies, they use very bright primary colors and they're glossy and they very, very much stand out versus modeling World War II. Everything in World War II was dirty, and all your colors are either green drab or olive drab or brown drab or blue drab, and, e- and even the SS uniforms were gray. I think that the culture of wargaming from the fantasy or the you know science fiction perspective tends to use more bright colors versus the paradigm of modeling World War II or any military tends to be more of a, um, a less of a contrast. The only thing is that you would put in for contrast enhancement is you would put in a few soldiers who are literally climbing out of the truck in perfectly bright green brand new uniforms, which is a technique to call attention to the uh, to the scene. If you you see somebody stepping on the, off the truck with a brand new M1 and a brand new perfectly creased knapsack and perfectly creased fatigues, you know he's new because he's getting off the truck mm-hmm. and uh, and he's got nothing on his shoulder or his regiment patch as a training regiment. I I feel a lot of contrast comes from the uh, tendency of a lot of, and this was true in model railroading maybe 50 years ago. Mm. People did it by themselves 
in a dark corner mm -hmm. away from everybody else. And nobody mm -hmm. knew there were model railroads. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, model railroads are a lot more public. Well, some are. There are still a good number of lone wolves out there. But I think it's more encouraged in groups such as ours <laughs> to, right. to, be, to be more open. Now, I will go into wargaming stores, you know, for things like paint, mm -hmm. but for things like ideas. And mm -hmm. I have an incredibly talented son, and I go into wargaming stores for games. In other words, for mathematical games or things that you can make mathematical games from, you know, like 12-sided dice and all those things. You know, if you if you were my if you were Michelangelo's dad, you'd drag home a rectangle or a cube of marble and say, "Have at it, son." That's all you need to do. And I have the same thing with my son. I can bring home some implements such as a twelve-sided dice or twenty-sided dice or some kind of unusual, you know, function selector or a statistical selector, and he'll create a game out of it. So, uh, you know, creativity in my house doesn't require much of a catalyst. <laughs> so. So uh, I think that a lot of a lot of wargaming may be very much culture driven. But I hear you. It's hard. It's hard to assess points in a room full of hundred point plus models. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's like walking into the Museum of Art and say, "Okay, which of these guys is a bum?" I said, "None of them are bums. They're in the museum." Yes. And, uh, yes. So, in so, terms of the original topic, in terms of the idea that the Bay Area is missing a particular kind of modeling potentially because of the kind of jobs people hold, but just it's statistically known that the Bay Area, folks living in the San Francisco Bay Area, was it all of California or was it mainland San Francisco Bay Area? I would say even more confined to, like, the greater Silicon Valley. Okay. You know, meaning... M making meaning my point even on. greater. Yeah, certainly. So yeah. it's interesting that you and Clark are doing this thing separately because I think the learnings well, that you both will have kind of collectively, would it be interesting to get you both on a future recording to kind of compare notes associated with what has been learned through this thing? Well, yeah, I mean, I think we're, well, we both, we both dreamed it up on our own mm. and ran with it for a few days or weeks before, um, see, for me, my approach was driven by the fact that we did a survey of the Coast Division and out of the um, 80 or 100 people that responded, only one or two were interested in the achievement program. Now, granted, I would say that you can be very much interested in building models and not interested in the achievement program. There's nothing sacred about the achievement program. But the fact that we had so little interest in modeling in the, the Coast Division, you know, I found interesting. So mm. I said, well, if the division is not interested in modeling, maybe the region is. Mm. And I said, well, if the, re if the region now, is interested... So much the better. And is Clark doing it in his region, or is he actually coming to San Francisco Bay Area to do a clinic about this topic? Clark is doing one in Western New York. Interesting. And so he's doing the Western New York. You're doing the San Francisco Bay Area, and in right. a similar time frame. And then you're going to, well, through my invitation, perhaps if nothing more, come back and have a conversation about it, which will be very interesting. Well. Yeah, I am probably going to do the entire thing online. Or if we have two or three to do it in person, the emphasis will be more of, a, of an online you know, clinic. So just from the, the interest I'm getting from, I have one guy who's extremely interested who lives in Hawaii. Mm. So I am sensitive to the fact that he's three hours different. 
And I, I think personally, one of the subtle things we've learned how to do on Zoom is to quit grumbling and kind of work with other time zones. Mm, you know definitely, I mean? definitely. <laughs> so, I mean, we, 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 we take as a given that uh, if you want to participate, or like you, have two or three different times. Mm-hmm. Yes, and say, so. okay, these are for the Aussies, these are for the Brits, so forth. Mm-hmm. We're, we're aware of that. Um, as bad as Zoom is, it can't fix time zones. <laughs> and, uh, yes. So. I've, I've started reading to my brother's children. He has a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And they're uh-huh. in Canberra, Australia. The oh, yeah. thing that we're going to change now is I will actually purchase copies of the books. I have some of the books, but not all of the books, and read from my copy to avoid the camera interaction. I think we're becoming a lot more creative with regards to all this stuff, just as means oh, yeah. of avoiding lockdowns and other kinds of social constraints. And certainly my interaction with my niece and nephew is very different now. We, as, as I'm reading, I pause occasionally and ask them, questions and we get into conversations and it's really very interesting doing this thing with such a large expanse of water in between but thankfully electronically so interesting so you're going to do are you both using the same kits or you're both using bar metal kits or was there agreement in that clark is using a downtown deco kit i believe Mm -hmm. he is doing something that's more hydrocal based interesting mine is more um the stick built bar mills type cool Cool. So, I mean, there's, again, the more the better. Certainly, certainly. You're doing something better. You're just doing something different than me. Mm -hmm. Have at it. Cool. So, as I have you on my Kodori, as I have you on live, doing something, clearly, but anything else associated with model railroading that you'd like to talk about before we move on to to Australia and other, other folks on the call? Well, I think organizationally, I think we are moving more towards a, uh, a more transparent, fewer gatekeepers, mm. more um, more involvement by the members. There's kind of, a, I mean, Gordy kind of broke the mold. He uh, came out of a, because um, technically, technically, if I want to run for office in the NMRA, I can just get so many signatures from mm-hmm. my own division and so many from another region. Mm-hmm. Something that essentially is easily performed by saying, Okay, Kansas City Division, when do you have your next meeting? Can I show up and then mm. show up and say, can you guys sign me off on my petition so I can run for office? And mm. it's like, a, to me, it's kind of a, a plane ticket <laughs> yes. to, a city, to, to a city I like, to people I like, plus I get the, the stuff signed off. Mm. So uh, for Gordy, it was a whole lot more complicated being over the ocean. So, uh, but he he made friends both physically and virtually, which I think was very useful um, for his... Well, yeah. Well, I think that's the key to it, is that he made friends. Yes. His his approach to the NMRA is, I got my friends here, and I want more friends. Yes, isn't it? So he had no great dreams of getting jobs for his buddies. Mm. His dreams were ones of having more, getting the best people for the jobs in the NMRA. Mm. He didn't know them right away. He was... Mm. He tried to meet him. He mm, did. Yes, and, uh, certainly. I mean, I look at Pete Steinmetz as an example. Here's a guy whose job is to qualify the batteries for your pacemaker. Mm-hmm. So he is clearly eminently qualified. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the kind of battery in your pacemaker is a little different than the kind in your electrically powered model airplane. <laughs> mm, <laughs> so uh, yes. to have somebody with that talent in the NMRA is just an awesome you know, an awesome achievement. So, and, and that's what he did. He, he put in Pete Steinmetz and uh, his qualifications and his congeniality, his mm. ability to work with people is good too. Yes. So I think that there's, there's a, you know, one of the things about, one of the things about COVID is 
you can kind of pick and choose the people you work with and mm. uh you can be picky because you got the whole world to pick from mm. and uh so i mean i think the whole organizational structure with the nmra is a lot more transparent it flows better if you know the guy chick sent me holy have you heard of him the guy on creativity and flow uh, if you look up his work we're kind of following his work so mm. uh, that's that's kind of a key so that's that's one thing I think about the hobby in general. I think the NMRA can be a lot more. It can provide a lot more benefit to mm. the present and future members. Mm. Good so. point, Mike O'Donnell. Good point. So. Well, Mike, you know how we do things. I wanted to get you at the front of the yep. show to make up for the, for the situation last show. And I, if anything comes up, if you have any things that you need to uh, throw out there, please feel free to bring up your mic and uh, suggest things accordingly. Sounds good. Hey, glad to have you back. This is great. Yeah, I'm enjoying it, actually. I'm enjoying it a lot. One of these days, I'll get to Vegas, and we can sit down over a few beers and talk about gifted children and homeschooling and all that mm. stuff. Yeah, my wife seems to want to pick your brains as well. I think we're just completely uh, overwhelmed with the with the you know standards and breaking standardized testing and all this kind of stuff. And I'm very hopeful that my girls yeah. will, in different, completely different directions, have very you know, interesting abilities, which you only discover in you know general interaction. But uh, no, it's um, oh, yeah. it's an interesting world that I found myself in, and I think you're a critical you're a critical partner in this. And certainly, Michelle still has questions for you. So when she's back from uh, SoCal, sure. if, if for no other reason, okay. I think you should you should come to Vegas just to uh, allow Michelle and I to uh, both you know pester you from different directions. Emil gives the old, ideal I, opportunity for that thing to happen. That's I guess. Well, I thing. will. I will definitely. I'll, I'll definitely figure out a way to get there. The I. <laughs> The IPMS, International Plastic Modeler Society, mm-hmm. had their national convention there in Vegas. I don't mm-hmm. know if you got to it. I didn't, and, unfortunately. Uh, I, I I accidentally found myself at a concert with all the – which I went to explicitly because it required vaccination and a variety of other things. But when I arrived there, perhaps due to legal action or some reason, all those things would be pulled away. And I thought, okay, so uh-huh. I'm now at a super spreader event. And that yeah. experience has basically cost me about two weeks worth of checking my temperature. We have tests in the house and all this other stuff. So, yeah, I'm okay. still erring towards um, hurt life, let's put it that way. Yep. Um, anyway, Mike O'Donnell, pleasure Talk catching up. Talk to you soon. Take sure. care. I would like to welcome on Mike Slater. It's been a few months since we last had a chat, Mike. You've gone through the summer months. Things are cooling down. What is going on with you in the model railroading hobby? I wish um, uh, my local experience with the NMRA was more exciting and more rewarding than mm. uh, what Mike Adorney has been going through. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I seem to be in a NMRA division that has a age demographic mm. that probably is to the point that they probably have their holy water and crosses anytime anything anybody mentions zoom or <laughs> technology because they i think they feel it's like the antichrist coming for them and that Certainly. um participation very disappointing when we try to do zoom call meetings um i had more people from neighboring divisions mm. and other regions and that coming into our zoom calls which i didn't mind mm-hmm. for when we had our monthly membership meets than uh than our own members mm. so this uh, thing it's hard to really describe uh, when i talk to my father about this my father's in his 
mid to late 70s. And of course, I'm absolutely all the technology. But when I talk about the um, various demographics and just the way they reacted to this COVID thing, I think my father's age demographic, not him personally, but his age demographic, really has taken this thing very hard. And the kind of forcing what, what's perceived as being forced into technology and these kind of things really, yeah, it's... I blame, in some regard, the technology companies. I think the interfaces for a lot of the stuff, Skype included, are not, you know, it's not simple. It's not necessarily simple if you've never experienced these technologies before. And so frequently when I'm in even like a small margin away from my co-worker's experience, just unmuting, muting, moving through, you know, the basic technical setup. It takes, you know, 30 minutes oh. for something. And it's not even an age demographic thing. So no, I it, think, uh, yeah, it's a, I think a personality, a geographical, mm -hmm. I've been on other NMRE divisions where they, they had age demographics that were very similar to our division and they mm -hmm. had high participation with zoom calls. I've been on zoom calls with the local NRHS chapter. Mm -hmm. There was, a, you know, again, a big age demographic of older people, mm. but a lot of the advantages I've seen with other divisions and in, in the zoom was that you were getting for example, the, the local Wisconsin chapter of the NRHS, which is National Railway Historical Society, mm -hmm. there was a gentleman that grew up in southeastern Wisconsin. Uh, he's now in his, I think, 70s, mm -hmm. retired, lives out in Las Vegas, mm -hmm. and he uh, joined the, the Wisconsin chapter of the NR, NRHS, and he's uh, he had been calling in to all the meetings now in Zoom mm. and participating that way. So mm. he actually uh, adores the the technology certainly, certainly. because uh, he can get back in touch with people in his old geographical yeah, area. Definitely. But it just with within our area, I've uh, moved our our board meetings where I'm trying to get them back into in person. But you know, understanding again, some some board members are. Still a little leery of, of gathering, so mm. I've been trying to do the the mix Zoom uh, in 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 person because <laughs> again with some people on the board they would never call into a Zoom call because they couldn't understand the the technology. Certainly, our next membership meeting will be probably all in person. I, I'm not sure if I'll be able to do it join her virtually, but mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, I was able to do this summer, uh, being that I'm gone within the past several years, gone heavily into traction modeling mm. on one of the Facebook groups. One of the members in the group is the nephew of uh, Sidem modeling porters that mm. imported brass models back mm. in the, the 60s and 70s wow. up to the early 80s. And we did a Zoom call where I recorded the Zoom call and I uploaded that onto the TrainFest, uh, I think it's like TrainFest-Wise mm -hmm. uh, Div NMRA. Mm -hmm. uh, you can just uh, search for TrainFest on, on YouTube and you'll find videos that we've uploaded. One of them is the nephew of uh, Sidem. And in fact, his father his father and uncle were actually kind of co-partners of the business. Mm, his father did all the building model kits which are now produced by another outfit, which I can't think of uh, that outfit offhand because the, the building aspect portion of the business had been sold several times over the years. And his uncle did the brass model importing, and he gave insights on how his, his uncle did the, the importing, and mm. the rest of the clinic was kind of heavy on Pacific Electric uh, mm. modeling. But, Interesting. Uh, Great, great insight on how they got into importing and making model trains out of the back of a garage. Mm. 
So you are you, you are having fun, basically. It's just not the I, fun I, that you want to have. Fun. In the summer, our uh, uh, trolley group was invited to set up at the East Troy Trolley Museum in East Troy, Wisconsin. We had our trolley layout set up for a weekend and had our models running. And then uh, last weekend, we also had our trolley layout set up at uh, an antique farm tractor uh, show that was nearby me. We had, besides our layout, another layout in the building. Hmm. Of course, then um, early next month, we'll be taking the layout out to Pennsylvania again. Mm. We're all in our little trolley group. We're kind of looking cool. forward to that, going back out to Allentown, Pennsylvania at the mm. beginning of next month. So there is some things. Of course, there's been some a lot of discussion with the division on Train Fest. This year, we decided to, to cancel it in June mm. due to financial reasons. Mm. Uh, not that many people understand that to run a show like Train Fest, it costs about $300,000 before yeah. you see any return of your investment. And when we sent out the invites, we were already about three months behind from when we normally send out the invites due to them. The fact that that was about the time we knew 100% that our facility was available for rent. Yeah. Otherwise, the past year had been a COVID-19 hospital. Mm for the state of Wisconsin, which thankfully all they had was, I think, like three or four patients total that ever used the facility. Mm. So that that was a good thing in that, uh, but it was also good that they had the facility if they needed it. So by the time June came around, that was about when we were ready to spend about close to $100,000 on advertising for the show. Mm. And when we started getting responses from manufacturers a lot of the smaller cottage manufacturers basically were telling us not this year because they're they couldn't afford to go to a show because their online sales had rocketed mm. through the roof and they were having a hard time fulfilling their their online orders mm. then trying to to take a week or a half a week off to travel to do a show and then come back and then probably still have a backlog of of orders to get out that is interesting um, that's an interesting data point yeah and then yeah. um and then of course there were there were some manufacturers that uh they were asking you know they said yeah here here's the paperwork and one manufacturer after sending out the initial invites i had their their invite back in less than 12 hours so the one contact for that company they must must have been receiving all their emails at home seeing the email and had it filled out and uh, and i think i sent the invites out at like four o'clock in the evening my time and when I checked the emails at six o'clock in the morning the next day, there was the <laughs> filled out form. Mm. So they were they were ready to do a show, but unfortunately, there just wasn't enough returned yeah. forms for paid vendor spaces or or, or hobby stores to proceed with the show. Mm. So we decided to punt till next year, and uh, next year we're going to be able to start a little bit earlier. So beginning of November, when, the weekend that when we would have had Train Fest, I'll be sending out the invites for 2022. So mm. hopefully we can get the show off the ground and move the show forward. Some of the things that we've we've learned and that with our, our division is with our age demographic uh, leads to another issue in that's not having a lot of times enough volunteers mm -hmm. to do these type of events. So it's almost kind of turned into where 
in the past, historically, the division ran ran the show, and now it's almost the show is running the the division. <laughs> kind of a word of advice: if anybody's planning on doing any type of event or show, try to keep it manageable for for your group because it can easily sometimes get out of control. You've had one heck of a presidency, Mike Slater. I can't wait. Uh, I should probably get one of those <laughs> countdown clocks for when my my term is. Oh done. my goodness! Uh, but I I haven't uh, even though I've I've lost probably a little bit of the ump. I'm still not giving up until my term is completely done. Mm. I still will fight for the division. I mm-hmm. will still fight for the NMRA. Mm-hmm. I, I still will fight for Train Fest. Mm. It's just that I can't wait till the day that my my term is done. Mm. The relationship with the hobby is an interesting one. I've had a similar conversation with Jim Gore periodically about his yeah his position on the NMRA. I think, yeah, you have such resilience and such passion and you know so many people and have such warmth with not just the hobby but with the people in the hobby. I don't think that will be – hopefully it won't be lost. But, yeah, it oh. is your relationship with regards to actually getting in and building stuff and these kind of things, let's talk about that. Let's talk about yeah. that. <laughs> So that aspect of the hobby, if you had, you know, aside from all the worries and all the, you know, problems that you've had, have you had a chance to actually build some interesting models recently, restore anything interesting? What What's on your workbench currently? Several things are on the workbench. They all seem to all kind of lead down the, the rabbit hole that I kind of got myself into, and that's the, the modeling of the North Shore in an urban line. I, let's see... Just trying to think when when we last uh, talked, but uh, uh, a long time anyways, ago. Anyways, I yeah, <laughs> I I've been completing several rosters of the North Shore. Mm. Uh, nice thing about modeling a railroad that that had a small equipment roster. It's easy to have a model of every item on the roster. Mm. So when the North Shore had five parlor observation cars, Ooh. it's easy to have a model of all five parlor observation cars. Yes. When those parlor observation cars were converted to coaches, it's easy enough to have all five of those mm. modified in, into coaches. So that's one of the things that I've now done is completed the parlor observation cars basically as built and mm-hmm. as modified. My uh, ferry truck uh, train, which is the a model of the very first trailer on flat car service uh, in the United States that the North Shore initiated. I now have all four of the flat cars that had been imported as brass models. Mm. And earlier this year, I acquired the blueprints for the flat cars that had not been made as brass models. So that's a, a, fu- a future 3D printing project. I just have to sit down and um, start doing measurements <laughs> and, and importing them into the CAD software. Certainly. Last, I think it was about, yeah, it would be last month now. Good friend Jeremy Dumler had changed um, some aspects of how he was going to model in model railroading. And he had initially gone to some prefab uh, modular kits that he had purchased, mm. but had changed his direction on uh, which module kits he wanted to go with. And he called me up and said, hey, I have a bunch of modular frames all glued together. Come and get them. Otherwise, I'm going to throw them on the curb. (laughs) So I drove down to his his house in Illinois. And as one of the other projects is, um, which I bought a Sawzall, is to cut up and remove a old hot tub that's in a side room in the basement. Gosh. And that's going to actually... 
Uh, I'm going to put in two HO scale layouts. To kind wow. Of double deck. Wow. Uh, the bottom, the bottom one will be a North Shore theme trolley layout. That'll be kind of a dog bone shape, just so I can run equipment on a regular basis. And then on the upper deck, probably about a foot and a half above the the deck for the trolleys, mm-hmm. will be a HO scale switching layout that'll be kind of midwestern, um, mm. maybe more orientated towards the Milwaukee Road, mm-hmm. but would look out of place if I decided to run a Wisconsin Central <laughs> uh, theme train on the layout. But uh, I figured I I had all this equipment that was stored in boxes as one could say or mm-hmm. on shelves Certainly. and yes. you know the aka home hobby shop and it was time to <laughs> get some dust off of the boxes certainly and, certainly and and get some useless a lot of the modular frames that jeremy gave me um will actually be put to use and we'll be able to construct the the ho scale switching type layout and then still kind of rough planning how the benchwork will fit into for the trolley layout things i would like to do on the trolley layout unfortunately the room is just isn't large enough to mm. do what i really would want to do but but on the other hand if all i want to do with the north shore is basically just to be able to sit down in an office chair and <laughs> run equipment yep i would rather have a nice scenic layout Certainly. than to have a uncompressed scene that I would want to model, so I'd rather just do a nice little vignette. Uh, what that vignette will be is still undetermined, but I think as I have the bench work or start constructing the bench work, it'll kind of all fall in place. But one one of the modulars that he gave me, which didn't quite really fit with the plans for either of those layouts, actually worked out pretty close for the uh, Northwest Traction Group standards mm. for the trolley module. Cool. So I done a little modification to that and cork is now laid and a couple of switches is now glued down and some track flex track is glued down and um, the goal is to have all the track work laid and brass line poles constructed so mm. that module will be taken out to the east penn trolley meet in, in allentown next month and my friend andy breaker will be doing a clinic on how to do overhead trolley wire mm. with that module so it actually works out great he can demonstrate on how to do overhead trolley wire on an actual um, piece of bench work in it. Mm. One of those crew posted a series, I don't know, maybe 20 photos of a layout that they had restored. And I didn't realize how compact the turns they could actually make on these compact layouts. I, yeah, I, it really was eye opening to me because I guess I'd seen one of their prior restorations, which was more kind of 12 inch plus turns, but they had some really tight turns on the compact layout. Andy owns the, um, oh, no, it escapes me, but it was a layout that was uh, in Model Rarity Magazine mm-hmm. in the uh, early 90s. It was a layout that was several months, I think like four or five mm-hmm. months on the construction of it. And that particular layout, a lot of it is all six, six and a half inch radius mm, yes. uh, curves in that. I think Andy might have posted a lot of the pictures of that one recently because the gentleman that he had bought the layout from, we recently found out that he had passed away. And uh. so it was kind of a little more memorial to, mm. uh, to him in that. But yeah, uh, but the gentleman that that actually built the layout, uh, he's still alive and mm. doing well in uh, Denver, Colorado. He he retired too. But, uh, yeah, and Andy owns. Um, oh, I can't think uh, the name of that layout offhand, but mm. but I know he had posted some pictures yes. recently. Yeah. Then another uh, one of our members. Uh, of course, he hasn't done anything really in the hobby for a while, but he had 
acquired a couple of segments of uh, a layout that that one gentleman that wrote the article for Model Order had on his home layout. Mm. And uh, he had totally restored that. And if you would have seen it beforehand, it looked like it was ready for the fire pit <laughs> uh, on how bad it was. But now it uh, looks like it's back to its magazine days of the uh, late 80s. Wonderful. So, yeah, no, there, there's a lot of good guys in our group that have a lot of great Absolutely. talent. But, yeah, no, that's, that's a great thing about being in a group or, or a club where the members are, the, are your friends um, <laughs> help share ideas Certainly. or help share their talents to achieve something that's a positive goal. Yeah, as a photo essay, it was just absolutely amazing. I think I commented and hearted and did all the other stuff that one does in these things. One topic I wanted to talk to you about because it's a favorite topic of mine, parlor observation cars. Just absolutely critical, particularly on Amtrak. The movement away from them, converting them back to passenger cars, was that a short-lived thing, or was it just because they needed the passenger cars and the parlor observation cars were too luxurious? It was a thing that, um, with the North Shore, they ran parlor car service all the way up until probably, I think it was sometime in the mid-30s. And then, of course, you know, being that time frame, Certainly. the Great Depression yeah. kind of ended the, the service and the car sat in storage for several years. Mm. And then the onslaught of the beginning of World War II, there was high tra- uh, passenger traffic on, on the North Shore because they had several military bases, uh, including one, a naval base that was Great Lakes in the northern part of Illinois along Lake Michigan. And they just needed the passenger mm. uh, coach seating. So the all five parlor observation cars were converted to coaches and all they really did was got out the interior completely and just put coach seats Certainly. uh in in its place and there were several diners that had similar conversions done mm. to them also so it just wasn't a a unique thing done just to the the parlor obses but the yep they just if, needed if, the passenger if, seating if, yeah. if, if, if you can if you can fill Increased capacity of hauling passengers by fourfold by converting it to a coach than parlor mm. observation. You're going to do what's going to make you the most revenue, especially Certainly. when people weren't spending the money for the parlor yes. uh, car scene. Did they move back after the war or did they remain austere? <laughs> they remain coaches all the way to end of service. There's two of them that are preserved uh, one in private hands, uh, one in uh, a railroad museum out on the uh, East Coast, and they're still set up as the, the coach uh, configuration. Certainly, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a film, and I just can't think of the film's name, but there's a lot of train travel in the film. Anyway, it's about two, It's a, I think Fred Astaire is in it, and he's chasing two women with another male fellow, and they end up in probably your part of the world. Um, but there's a lot of train travel, and the both the parlor observation cars and also the diners are critical parts of the film. And I think, yeah, certainly, I appreciate through the depression and the needs for um, military movement, but they're just such a critical part of a railroad, I think. Yeah. As, as a passenger, I certainly like them, and I like seeing them in films, so yes. And, and that's one of the things that Nora Shore even all the way to the last day of service, they still had a fine uh, dining car service, mm-hmm. whether it be in the Electra liner or what was known as the substitute liner. Mm. But even their depots had lunch counters. Mm. So, And a lot of times you would have a lot of the local residents, uh, they may not even travel on the train. They would go to the depot to the lunch counter, mm. order a sandwich or order a hamburger <laughs> and a pop and, and have their lunch at the depot uh, just because the – the uh, food service was that good uh, on the on the North Shore. Yes, 
Of course, if you're in the military at Great Lakes, you would be uh, ride, riding the dining car, and especially when you got close to the, the state line, you would then go into the dining car because in, at that time, the, the drinking age in the state of Wisconsin was 18, mm. and the drinking age for the state of <laughs> Illinois uh, in the 50s, and that was still it was at 21. Yes. So the sailors were smart, or the, the guys that uh, just got out of high school were smart, Certainly. and they knew they could ride the North Shore do a little day trip up to Milwaukee. And um, when you got close to the state line, you would go to the dining car. And as soon as you cross the state line, you could order your uh, barley pop, as sometimes it's referred to, or your yes. beer. And then spend the afternoon drinking at Milwaukee Taverns, get on the train again, and go back home. Interesting. 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 Well, Mike Slater, you're, as always, you're a wealth of information. And I think uh, certainly the historical elements of this hobby and casting your mind back to to calmer, gentler times, even when the country was at war compared to currently. It, yeah, no, amazing stuff, Mike Slater. Thank you very much for being on the call. In terms of the hobby, in terms of things that you've got coming up, is there anything that's exciting and new? I mean, obviously, this this space that you have opening up gives a lot of possibilities, and it'd be really nice to see. Um, if, if it's not too dingy, I get the sense that some areas um, may be dark and dingy, but if you put, if you could put bright light on it and uh, make it seem like it's Facebook ready, I'd be really interested to see what you do with this, this space, the former hot tub area. When the room gets cleared out, I just need to get, get the time to go down in Certainly. the basement sawzall and, and cut out the hot tub and uh, start bringing chunks of it out and throwing it in the garbage on a weekly basis. Very and, good. Uh, but yeah, it it will be something that will be a uh, milestone reports on, on the construction and and on the layout. And of course, there will have to be some lighting improved because right now there's just <laughs> two fluorescent light fixtures in that room that are failing. And <laughs> very good, very good. Oh, it's good that my my mind's eye of what it looks like is actually quite accurate. I didn't want to be offensive, Mike Slater. Thankfully, yeah. I don't think I have been. Well, you know what to do. Stay on the call. If anything comes up, please feel free to jump in. It's really, you know, you're one of the main people of this particular recording. And I've really missed our chats over the past few months while I've been dealing with other things. So please don't be a stranger. Call back in. And I look yeah. forward to our future conversations. Mike O'Donnell. Yeah. Hey, Mike Slater, Mike O'Dorney here. Hey, yeah. you did that great presentation on the Sudam industry, the company. Yes. And... You focused a lot on the on the models, the the rolling stock. Can you do a similar one on the buildings, the sedan buildings? I will have to contact him to see if he can do something like that or go into the background of that. Uh, I know uh, when he gave that presentation, he was basically that that following week after he gave the presentation, he was going to Europe because uh, his um, one son was in in the service and they were expecting their their first child so he was okay, flying overseas yeah. to visit it, uh, or to welcome to the world his uh, new grandchild that sounds good i understand that but yeah. that was an absolutely outstanding show i absolutely loved it a bunch of us out here in the west coast loved it good. so keep up the good work thank and, you and, that, and, and that's why i also uploaded it to youtube as i knew not everybody could be present for the actual call but it was uh, a good way of keeping the information out there and alive and for the longest time, I before he even started the call, kind of like what Tom does with new callers, is always ask how how do you pronounce your your surname? And because I don't know how many times I would sit, give different pronunci pronunciations of it, and just not 
being with a name like that in my geographical area, but it was good to actually find out the proper way of, of pronouncing uh, Sidem. No, but thanks for, for joining in on that call, Mike. Well, thanks to both of you. Pleasure catching up. Mike Slater, keep doing what you're doing, and we'll talk soon, hopefully. Take care. Okay. I would like to welcome on a gentleman who I've missed talking to really greatly. I've had lots of little interactions. I think I've sent you a few photos. But my eldest daughter is called Adelaide. And she's called Adelaide specifically because I have a connection to a place which is very close to Jim Gifford. And I thought, what better name to call my eldest than the town that's very close to Jim Gifford as well? The thing I reflect on with regards to Adelaide is most of the people I used to meet with in the town of Adelaide are no longer there. But Jim Gifford and his crew have replaced that group of folk. So, Jim, pleasure talking to you. In terms of your crew, there seems to be a lot of progress made through the winter months. I know certainly uh, with the the Adelaide, Chris Adams has made a lot of progress recently. And I, I got an update from you live from an operating session. And just lots of bits and pieces seem to be going on. I wanted to start with Roscoe. What's the status of Roscoe's layout currently? Well, we went and did some work and put the new CD in. It's in and solved his electrical issues mm. mainly. Currently, he's on leave. Oh. He's, uh, he's uh, got himself an ultralight plane. Ah. Uh, he wants to get it to a point where he can take it out and fly it. Interesting. <laughs> Well, the ultralight's been in his just above his layout for many years now, though, right? Does he does he find yeah, it at all? Actually, making a trailer and he's oh, interesting. Uh, and he's bought a new engine and yeah, we we haven't been seeing very much of Roscoe. So okay. um, he decided in the last few weeks that guys, well, I'm probably not going to be around at the end of the year, so take me out of the roster for now. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll see what happens next year. Interesting, <laughs> interesting. So obviously Chris yeah. Adams' layout, now operating sessions, now things have moved on strength to strength. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, he's certainly done lots and lots of scenery work. You know, like I, I with the COVID stuff, we hadn't been meeting very often. And then for the last, I don't know, three sessions that were his place, I was either interstate or up with the kids in their new hotel at Craddock. And, uh, yeah, you seem to be uh, like a... Uh, Critical member of the team getting various bits of equipment and other things. This yeah, is a- I, I guess you know it's a bit of a, a bit of a family venture. Some of the kids always wanted to do, so um, they've spent a bit of their potential inheritance. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Interesting, which is formally secured, so it keeps <laughs> the family balance inheritance correct. Certainly, and um, yeah, I had to go back and do some old managerial work and. Uh, mm. You know, setting up systems, evaluating software for yes. point of sales and all gosh, that sort of stuff. Gosh, But that's that's another issue. Um, <laughs> I, I guess with Chris, one of the issues he's found is that he didn't paint the ends of the MDF board when it was cut. Ooh. And what's happened is um, with the scenery, mm. some of it swelled yes. caused track problems. So yes. he's been having to go and, and fix that. <laughs> I forget how damp Adelaide is. I mean, there's some solid rain seasons in there, and yes. Yeah, I think it's more from the water from the scenery. Ah. 
right? Because you, you, we use water-based glues. Yeah, of course, yeah. Interesting. And uh, I think what's happened is soaked in because you, you know, like when you're putting ballast down, you soak it with with uh, water down water with, a, yes. with some uh, dishwashing liquid in it. And, yeah. um, you know that that's got into the edges. So mm. yeah, it caused him a few issues. He had a couple of point failures underneath, which was really great. And had to take a section up. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a. Uh, he's had a few challenges, but at least it's, he's got it to the point where it's working pretty well now. So terrific. He's he's pretty happy going around the group. Barry's planning is coming on very well. Mm. Uh, once again, we haven't we haven't started construction as early as we thought. Mm. So, but Derek has reviewed his plan, which he drew in any row, and mm-hmm. and uh, he thinks it'll work okay in terms of grades and curves and all the rest of it. So, mm. we've been to. Well, I don't think you've met Peter Saunders. Peter, Peter's joined a group in the last, uh, seriously, in the mm-hmm. group, as in coming along Mondays rather than just uh, occasional operating sessions. So we've been to his place and did a, a, some uh, construction mm. there, or model construction, mm-hmm. construction layout. I guess when I've been around there, I've been I've been building speedos. So. Gosh, gosh. <laughs> so I think I've made four portable ones so far. Mm. Has uh, COVID impacted Spacky's new property acquisition. I I see periodic updates from him kind of almost codified. Well, um, he's he's, had, he's packed up all his model railway stuff because mm. he's, uh, he's remodelled his existing house. It looks nothing inside. looks nothing like it did three years ago. Mm. Interesting. And, um, but that was originally to sell it to buy something else, wasn't it? Or am I got that, that completely that's wrong? That's right. He's, he's actually... Um, First of all, he bought the block next door and was going to do a big shed. And then he decided, no, he'd like to go to a, a different area. So he's going to Stirling North, mm, which, gosh. Uh, you know, it's only about 10 minutes drive from, from Port Augusta. So, you know, it's more of a housing. So he's building a new house. The uh, uh, roof's on and the brickwork went in the last couple of weeks. Wonderful. Um, so they're now into, second, now into second fix and... He's hoping to be in by Christmas with the housewarming in May. <laughs> mm. Gosh. Gosh. So, so he has a time frame at least. Very good. Very good. It, that's that's where, you know, he hasn't done anything train-wise. He did come down and work with Don at the uh, at the exhibition and spend a few days down. But they've, he's been working afternoon shifts six to seven days a week. Gosh. So um, haven't seen Jock. I know Jock had a, fam- a few family um, mm. health issues. It was having to deal with, so we're hoping to get back on a more of an even keel next year. Because mm. uh, when COVID was on, if they came to Adelaide, then they had to go back. They weren't allowed to go to work without quarantining. Mm. Yeah, it was. Just, it upset a lot of things over here, but the same everywhere. Yeah, my brother yeah. and my cousin both had weddings planned, and my cousin, who's an ER doctor, has not set a date. He just postponed the wedding. Whereas my brother, who's more hopeful and not an ER doctor, thinks maybe, well, it was originally going to be this November and now it's next February. Yeah. Quite well, ambitious. Um, my brother is in Canberra, but the difficulty is that the in-laws or soon-to-be in-laws are in Tasmania and Victoria. So basically if they get snapped at lockdowns, it's all over. My uh, cousin is on the... I always think of Byron Bay, but that area of um, 
uh, northern New South Wales. And his fiance, I think, is from Sydney. I mean, he's from Adelaide originally. So all possibilities of snap lockdowns that can just take out chunks of family members. And obviously, well, at the moment, our borders are still shut with Victoria. They're shut with New South Wales. Yeah. Yep. Um, <laughs> our, our own residents can't even get back. Yes. No. That was the thing that really it's impacted me was that you you could just get stuck, right? <laughs> and I have a family yeah. in the US that I need to get back to periodically. And when I looked at the uh, possibilities of being stuck in a snap lockdown in Sydney, the Sydney area, I could arrive in the airport and not actually get to the wedding. Um, so, yeah, there are a whole series of these possibilities. And I think when other folks start doing the, the thought experiments as well, they find out very quickly that you just get stuck. We've got the, the mass vaccinations going on. It's going to be really interesting when we get to 80% double vaccinated. They intend to open up. Yes. Western Australia doesn't want to know. <laughs> yes. But you could see the eastern south of the country being open and the, and the West being locked down. Yeah. So, you know, the international airlines are looking at flying into Darwin and Sydney, not and missing Perth with, with the way they're going. So. Yes, yes. I got a thing from Qantas. I also got a thing from British Airways. Uh, Qantas is saying returning 2022, potentially, for getting flights. And I mean, the, the US carriers go to Australia, but the Australian carrier doesn't. Um and yeah, British Airways are saying with vaccination parity, you know, I could fly to London at any time. So that's what we're looking at for next year for our yeah, international well, you know, travel. Kay and I both got our certificates of being vaccinated. Yes, yes. We're not sure when Kay wants to go overseas again, but she's thinking about twenty three. So yes. Mm. No, I, I yeah. Other areas, Ross's Willunga, you know, we've been um, having some op sessions there, <laughs> and uh, he did the the oh no thing last time he was playing with his throttle and we we're all we we're all over there running for some reason it was set on programming track instead of programming mm. on the main and he reset every single loco that was on the track to the same dress <laughs> wonderful wonderful you've had some major so, changes associated with moving to nce right uh for me yes 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 and, but it's a it was interesting you know i waited ages for that new booster certainly and it, we were losing. We lost control of anything going into that booster area. Mm. They would still run because the tracks were powered, and it just went on the last instruction it got. Mm. So anyway, I got the new NCE system, and there's a shortage worldwide of NCE stuff. They're just starting to get parts to remanufacture. So I'm still two boosters down mm. on where I need to be, but. I'm just using the old MRC for accessories like I did before yes. and using the lens booster to run loco. Mm. So you can, it's compatible with NCE. Certainly, certainly. So I put it in there, loco's all nice and live, mm-hmm. just like it was when it was in the, with the Roco system. Yes. But nothing will run. Mm. And I'm thinking, is there a problem with this booster? Mm. <laughs> so I read the, the manual cover to cover and the only setting I hadn't touched was uh, Lens have got a feedback system. Mm. So, you you know, so it talks to the decoders and whatever. And apparently the new booster came with it turned on. Mm. And if if it's not getting a feedback loop, it doesn't issue any commands. Mm. <laughs> so when I turned it off, guess what? It all came alive. Wow. 
So I'm just wondering now whether that might have come alive if I'd done that with the Roco system. Mm. <laughs> anyway, I've got a nice new NGE system. Wonderful. Now I've got I've got eight wireless throttles, mm. <laughs> so there won't be any squabbling about who's got a wireless, who's got a Tesla throttle anymore. Interesting. And uh, and it works through the brick wall into next next you know into TV. We had a shakedown on Monday. Mm. We were just said. Bring your locos and we'll have a fun run and see if we can make sure it works. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're pretty good. So the reason uh, for moving, normally, particularly when I used to live in the San Francisco Bay Area, it was because it was what all your friends had. So you just went to whatever. But with you, it was to do with actual technical, well, delays and arrival and various other yeah, things. That yeah, you well, were... it, was a, it was a technical glitch, as it turned out. The technical glitch was in the booster that I'd bought. Yes. But anyway... Probably if I'd been able to nail that before, <laughs> it would have stayed. But anyway, yes. I've got a nice system that works lovely. Far easier to do contests. I love oh, yes. a lot of nice features that the other one hasn't got. Yes, certainly. Um, yeah, the contesting is, is so much better. You can you can call it up by the loco in the contest, mm-hmm. front or back, or the contest number. Mm. It's very smart. I like it. Very good. Very good. Have you donated right. your Roco throttles to a good cause, or are they just? Uh... Oh, I've been. Uh, we, we've decided on a reasonable second-hand price. Okay. Mates rates. Price. Cool, cool, cool. So at the moment, all the red ones are gone. Mm-hmm. Roscoe wanted to get the the blue ones, so I've, I've offered them to him at a good price, but I'm not sure he's going to take it. Anyway. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. We'll see what happens. Yeah, Chris was interested, but he only wanted one throttle. If he takes the base and one radio throttle, then I'll just put the others on eBay. They'll sell. They're, they're in demand. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Jim, it's a pleasure catching up. Thank you very much for calling in today. Yeah, please, please say hello to uh, Michelle, and I'm glad to hear Certainly. the girls are going well. Oh, my goodness. Too well. Almost too well, I would say. But, yeah, no, Michelle is in Southern California this weekend, so... I'm on, not really on girl duty, we just have, like, nannies and stuff that are coordinating most of the heavy lifting, and I'm responsible for ordering in the food and making sure everyone's happy. Okay. That's my role. Sounds like you've got it well organised. <laughs> Believe me, yeah. It's amazing, actually, the uh, kind of human resources project management. You know, I've, I've never done it professionally, it's never been my title, but I've certainly observed a few good ones in my career. And yes, it's amazing actually enacting it and working out how these people coordinate and paying them and giving them COVID tests. And yeah, interesting times. Interesting times. Jim Gifford, it saddens me that I won't probably be able to see you for another three years until all this stuff normalizes. But because my daughter is called Adelaide, we have to get to Adelaide to introduce her to her namesake, even though it's a yes. huge city. So yeah, we will definitely be in your part of the world sometime in the future. It's just increasingly more interesting trying to work out how to get. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And I look forward to the day we can uh, catch up again. Definitely. Well, thank you for calling in, Jim. You know what to do. Stay on the line if anything comes up. I, I'm hoping to talk to John Yates. But, yeah, if anything comes up that you want to throw in on, please raise your volume and raise your voice. Okay. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> I would like to welcome on John Yates. Now, I'm currently talking to you live from the road. Is that is that what's happening currently? Yes, on my way into Melbourne at the moment, yes. Wonderful, wonderful. So, firstly, thank you for calling in. I thoroughly enjoyed your posts on the Model Rail Radio Facebook group. As this is your first time calling in, 
Would you like to introduce yes. yourself and your model railroading interests? Uh, well, yes. Yeah, well, as you know, my name's John. I, I live in Wagga in New South Wales. Ooh. I, I, um, predominantly, I was modelling our last car, which is the uh, pictures you probably saw on the Facebook group. Uh, I took a little side step a few weeks ago when I was exploring a, a container and I found some gauge wagons over many years ago. <laughs> so I've sort of bought quite a few gauge models since then and uh, been busily building uh, edge brass kits. Wonderful. Maybe you're, you have many interests, so if you have many interests, that's fine too. But what are your specific interests? English railways mainly. English railways yeah, mainly. Uh, okay. Yeah, my things. Uh, I, yeah. I've got a bit of OM30, um, bit of OM30 stuff. My wife bought me an OM30 puffing billy Ooh. on my birthday last week. Interesting. I've got to find some carriages for it now. Yes, I think <laughs> I have relive some happy memories in the dandelions. Yes. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, I have an OM30 puffing billy somewhere that I think the professor passed on to me. Is it the, the standard OM30 kit puffing billy, or is it the uh, some eclectic no, brass no. model? No, it's uh, it's predominantly plastic and metal. Uh, they've just released it through uh, the Brunel Hobbies in Melbourne. Oh, okay, interesting, interesting. So it's yeah, not the same one I have. This one's been made by Haskell in China. So That's the same one. Yeah, I've got I've got the metal plastic Haskell uh, puffing building yeah. somewhere. So yeah, yeah, it's a nice little one. I, I spent many weekends up in the Dandelions taking photos of puffing buildings. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and for folks listening in who aren't from Australia. Puffing Billy is probably the preeminent little kids riding on a train through the Victorian wilderness locomotive. It's the, I don't think there's really an equivalent here in this country. In the UK, there are many different uh, narrow gauge locomotives that fill that uh, role. Uh, but in Australia, uh, Puffing Billy, um, you know, is, is particularly special. Is your intention to actually create a, a layout? I, eventually, I might build an OM30 layout. Yeah. Interesting. But it, it will run on the OO gauge track, so. Very good. I was having any low bridges, I'll be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly. So, that's pretty well defined your interest. In terms of the local community, are you part of the uh, Australian OO gauge community? Are you part of the any of the narrow gauge I, communities or anything like that? I joined the English OO gauge guild. It's quite good. We have our own club in Bogger, which, uh, well, there's not many members left. It's sort of dying out. We're going to go on membership drive soon, I think. Right. But we're all, we've got American and Australian and English models. <laughs> but there's only, not many of us left. There's only a handful of things. Certainly. Certainly. Yeah, the, the UK modelling fraternity in Australia, I've met double O folk. I'm trying to think if I've met any O scale. Folk, but yeah, it, it seems to be a. I mean, there's a dedicated community, but it's decreasing in size, I guess. Yeah, there is a dealer in Sydney, but he's temporarily shut down at the moment while he's relocated. And I've bought some models of two people in Western Australia that seem to be very active over the years. So I had too many models, so I bought some models. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Uh, actually, I, I bought a ship last night. Going crazy, it's a. 150th scale ship, so I've got to include a wharf in my high-scale railway. Interesting, yes. So, um, in terms of the community in Wagga, outside of O-scale, just the broader model train community, is it still... I have a... My brother's wife's father 
uh, is in orange, but he gets to walk up periodically. So I have, I should probably state my interest in asking you this question. Yeah. Is the trade fraternity strong or is it, uh, is what's happening with O happening with it all scales in Walker? Well, as far as I know, the only O scale problem there at the moment. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Five railways is a very large HO scale railway. Mainly people running Australian trains on it. Um, I've got a few Australian logos myself. I've got some of the newer SDS NR class logos there. Mm. Interesting. Yes. Yes. Lovely engines to run. But, uh, yeah, mainly we have our running night every Monday night. So, hasn't had a great deal of work done on it. People are more interested in running trains and building surgery, unfortunately. We're going to try and turn that around. Going to get a few more members first up. Is there an annual show in your area? We were running a show annually, but not for the last couple of years. Obviously, yeah. We were trying to get one done this year, but with this other outbreak, it's not going to Hopefully next year. Maybe I'll display an O-Gage Railway next year. <laughs> so do you have an O-Gage Railroad that will travel? Do you have one that's uh, ready for well, shows? I've got two boards built. I haven't laid any track on them yet. I've got two six-foot-by-two-foot boards, so it, I can make it so I can travel. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. The RR scale was going to go to the show, but when things got too bad, sort of progress stopped on it. I will get going again. I've got a lot of wiring to do. Yes. A lot of street lights and house lights that I've wired up. <laughs> I keep putting it off. Yes. It's hard soldering upside down, especially when the solder drops in your face. Yes. Not pleasant. Not pleasant. <laughs> I'll have to tip it over one day and do it wrong. Yes. Do you use a grain of wheat or do you use LED for the lighting? Uh, I've been buying LEDs from China in the really tiny little A0402s. Certainly. crazy one day and I put headlights and a tail light on a little uh, HO scale truck. Gosh, gosh. That's how tiny the LEDs are. Yes. And you're not going in for uh, radio control just yet? No, no. <laughs> you're drawing the line. <laughs> yeah. You, you, need, yeah, you need a certain level of sanity. I appreciate that. Yes. Well, I go a bit off here. <laughs> yes, yeah. Those tiny little gears are just moving in the carpet. <laughs> Interesting. I dropped an LED with two six-inch wires on it one day, and I still haven't been. Yes. Yeah. I don't know where it went. No idea. Just dropped straight down between my legs, and I haven't seen it since. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. It's interesting. The um, yeah, the, the continued miniaturization of aspects of this hobby to the point where they're not even really human usable in some regard, unless you have very tiny yes. hands or. Uh, a particular kind of persuasion around that. Interesting. So, in terms of the puffing billy model, I'm I'm fascinated about this. Are you actually planning on building rolling stock for it? Is the commercial ready to build rolling stock for it, or do you have to scratch for well, it? Well, that Brunel hobbies, he's got some 3D bridges, bodies, and chassis, so I've got to investigate it a bit further, yeah. But I would like to build it as running. I have some figures hanging on the side there, dangling their feet. In <laughs> interesting, interesting. I think, I think it's the only railway left you can actually sit on the outside of the carriage. But still. Yes. Is it frowned upon or do people still do it? I think they still do. I, I, I don't know whether it's been running much since COVID. Certainly. Yeah. But I know last 
John, it's wonderful to have a chance to chat with you. I know when you when you started posting on the Facebook group, I was trying to get you on a show. It seems like years ago. It was probably only months ago, but uh, it was good to have the chance to chat yeah, with you. Probably, then. probably last year, I put that Coronation Street title. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, um, your area of modelling and also your area of the country is uh, both things of interest for me. My father-in-law, I think I'd call him my father-in-law. I don't know what I'd call him. He's, he's my anyway. He's my brother's wife's father. Um, he, uh, I think, has been looking for any any excuse to get back into modelling the UK. I don't think um, he must be. I think he's probably originally from the UK. Um, but anyway, when uh, my brother and uh, his daughter got married, obviously it was in Australia. I went to the wedding, uh, but then as soon as I got back to the US, I found um, as many secondhand uh, UK. Double O locomotives and rollings that they could, and I sent him a box. And apparently, his wife has kept him away from the box. So I don't know how I actually resolved those issues. But my my view is is a, a bad influence, you know, brother of his daughter's husband. Um, my role is to also find a local community that can pester him in real time, as opposed to remotely with uh, boxes and these kind of things. So um, yeah, apologies for the quizzing, but it does have some. Uh, some positive. Oh, no, no, I did have a short chat with a tap on the uh, yeah, gauge Guild website one night. He's actually in Lithgow. Interesting. So, there's an no gauge English modeler in Lithgow. That's not far from it. No, no. Yeah. All possibilities, all possibilities. Well, yeah. thank you very much for calling in, uh, John. And um, yeah. yeah, it's great. Glad I finally got on. Thank you. Don't worry about. It. Don't worry about. It. I'll take any congratulations at any time. So, yeah. thank you very much for offering that. I was disappointed. I was disappointed. It went off the air. I've had to listen to uh, Lion and String for the last few months. <laughs> Believe me, the burden is real. People have contacted me with exactly uh, exactly that same concern. But I think you know, <laughs> the Mike Slater and some of his friends. Uh, uh, Tom Gazier and what have you—they're all—they're uh, all uh, creating new podcasts. So I think the new podcast community, in my absence, um, has been very interesting to see evolve. Um, but thank you, John. A pleasure chatting. Um, I'm pleased to have the call. If anything comes up, uh, yeah. feel free to bring up your audio and I'll throw in your uh, commentary. Certainly, certainly will. I hope, you, I hope you're back to stay for a while. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure. Look, believe me. My view is the model rail radio community will track me down and put me back on the air no matter what happens. So, uh, it's not a community I can run from necessarily, John, but thank you for calling in. Pleasure chatting. Well, that's, that's good. Thank you. like to welcome on John Daring. John, it's been, as with everyone, about uh, probably, what, four to six months since we had a chance to chat. What has been going on? I've kind of interpreted from Facebook that either you've done some moving or done some reconciliation or just things seem to have changed since we last had the chance to chat. What's been going on with you and the model railroading hobby? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Hi, uh, good to talk to you again. It's great to hear your voice. I'm excited that you're back uh, 
online and running again. We missed it. No, no, no moving. I'm working on a set of modules in InScale. I've been posting a lot on that. It's a kind of a monster project that keeps growing as they often do. And mm-hmm. it's now 32 feet long. Yeah, and I attended a Fremo InScale meetup in Evanston, Wyoming in wow. August. Gosh. Which turned out to be a big deal. It started out as sort of a low-key private meet where mm-hmm. not a train show or even a public event and ended up being a really big thing. We built a, a layout that took about 15,000 square foot building Gosh. and filled it. We had 293 modules. Gosh. Yeah. And uh, just a lot, a lot of fun. And of course, that uh, got me pretty jazzed up and enthused about um, about building my own set. I flew mm. out there, so I was able to take take my own uh, kind of modules to this show. But um, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what I've been doing in the hobby. That and I officially got on the uh, the NMRA national board as of the beginning of July. So I've been involved in a couple of work sessions for that already. So I'm mm. getting my feet, understanding what's going on behind the scenes. So that's, that's the other thing I've been working on. Evanston, Wyoming is such an interesting place to have a, a module. Was it in scale module? Yes. Yeah, it is a strange place. You know, I've been to Wyoming a few times, mm. but even when I got it, I thought, well, I don't even know where that is. And um, mm. it's in the very, very, very southwestern corner Certainly. of Wyoming, just a few miles from the border with Utah. It's on the UP transcontinental line. So it's a super, super place to have a Definitely. model railroad meet because a train comes by here every 20 minutes and you can yes. run out and check it out. Little bitty town, kind of out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. otherwise. I've actually yeah, been but, through it. I, I did a road trip with my wife maybe three years ago from Northern California where we were to Philadelphia. And we had a Southern route and a Northern route. We took the Southern route there and the Northern route back. I think we went through it when we did the Southern route, Evanston, Wyoming. But yes, it's a tiny, you, you sneeze and you've missed it, right? If you're driving it kind of into state speeds. It's a, yeah, it's one of the smaller... Wyoming has some pretty interesting towns in it, particularly on the southern side of it. Yeah, an interesting place for a, an N-scale modular. But uh, let's talk about this, because you, you raise an interesting point here. This was originally run by a private person, right? It was originally a private get-together, I guess, of friends or people that yeah. this individual yeah. knew. And then it's become a national thing, right? Yeah, so, yeah, b- back up a minute here. The the N-scale community was really modular, was really driven by N-track in the early years, and, and actually modular model railroading in general was largely attributable to, to N-track in the early days. But N-track always had as a part of the mission to kind of show off for the public, right? So mm-hmm. three mainline tracks, lots of trains Certainly. running, Certainly. a lot of activity, and really a, a draw for the public. Yeah. By the time free comes along first in other scales eventually and in it's really more about operations it's mm-hmm. really more about playing with the trains for Certainly. the benefit of of the participants rather than putting on a show for the public so they've always had a bit of an ethic i think around kind of a more private sort of setup but of course the what we've gone through with the pandemic in the last year and a half did nothing but increase everybody's appetite for getting together i'm in <laughs> and so, yeah, they had a meetup earlier in the summer in Deschler, Iowa, you know, <laughs> for Free Creek Model Train, uh, Railroad Terms, Model Trains is. So, um, yeah, and yeah, you know, and it, what's amazing, Tom, is that many, many people that came to that show packed up modules in vans or in trailers mm. and thousand miles together. Yep, certainly, certainly. That's dedication. <laughs> yes, yes. 
So when did it convert from being a private gathering to now an open show? It really wasn't. It really was a private meet. Part of that was, uh, so it was a private meet, but I wouldn't say it was exclusive. If somebody mm-hmm. wanted to participate, all you had to do was get in touch with the people who were organizing it. Yes. It, was easy to, it was easy to get in, but, it, but we still only had, oh, I don't know, maybe 60 people or so mm. um, for a layout that took, the estimate was it took, and actually some people did it, to run over all the track in this layout took almost six hours. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, some scale of a layout. And to have that big of a model railroad layout and have only 50 or 60 people there and have only maybe half of them operating at any one moment, it was, you know, it was, it was sort of the opposite of a big train show. But the movement yeah. of the modular community has always been, I mean, I, I, Spent quality time with Mike Slater at, at least one national, I think, maybe two. The, no, I don't think Mike Slater was at the one in Portland, but there were certainly representatives from the West Coast with the modular layouts that were offered in Portland. Uh, it's an interesting community, and it's interesting you mentioned N-Track, because when you see N-Track at a show and then you see N-Scale Modular, they're very, very different. Just the, the whole modeling perspective is very different. And I, I think N-Track is definitely fun. But you get a quality of modeling in the modular communities, which is, you know, also will, will gather a crowd. But yeah, the, the community aspect of it, I always find fascinating. I mean, Mike has given us a window into this because obviously he's so well involved, but the, the nature of just bring set up, run, uh, I mean, the, the compatibilities make it possible to do that. But the idea that this thing is national, potentially even international, is really fascinating that the excitement of bringing your modules and plugging them into this, you know, vast network. But yeah, the space is, is the critical part, I think. And um, certainly, I think I talked to Mike Slater and others about shows where they just haven't quite given the modular community the space they need. And it's always, you know, versus potentially near unlimited space wherever that is possible. But yeah, it's a community that is just about the fun of bottle railroading fundamentally. Uh, and it is, I, I find them always uh, good people to talk to. The number of times I've been taken around the same modular layout by different people emphasizing different models and different characters that have built different you know, aspects of it. And I think um, certainly in Portland, uh, there were a couple of gentlemen who, who called it to Model Rail Radio previously, and they both gave me a different tour. Like It was like it was a different layout from their, each of their perspectives based on their knowledge of the modelers and uh, these kind of things. There was desert sections of Victorville where my in-laws live and where my wife grew up, which, you know, one modeler who had called into Model Rail Radio a few times took, I want to say it's Chip Anderson, but it probably wasn't Chip Anderson. Anyway, so, you know, he knew that I liked Victorville or knew Victorville. And so he spent particular, you know, detail. And then the local Portland guy, who also had called in, was talking about the various modelers that had done various things on it. And Mike Slater um, also loved walking around the, the vast modular layout and pointing out various modelers and their particular proclivities, which was also evident in the models. So how ensconced in this community are you, John? You attend this thing. You've attended multiple this thing multiple times, or is this your first time there? So I've been involved with in track kind of in and on on and off for more than a decade mm-hmm. i have in track modules i've participated there is a pretty active group up here in new england mm-hmm. but i wasn't involved too much in 
Fremo, but then I, you know, when I started seeing Fremo layouts, and you're right to point out that there's kind of a different modeling ethic, right? There's mm-hmm. always been more about the show, and they've always been, well, not always, but they're pretty inclusive, and, mm-hmm. um, and you get all kinds of modelers, all kinds of levels, a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. You just have to know that if you're an in-track modeler, you may have some really high fidelity, high quality modules in that, and I, and I like to say, and, you, and you'll end up next to a volcano, right? <laughs> with dinosaurs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, that's part of the fun of it. You have to, that's it. But what Intrac is really, really good at, because they go around in loops and loops and mm-hmm. loops, is showing off and running really long trains. Certainly. That's, that's, that's really fun. Now you get over to Fremo, which I haven't been involved in too long, but I've been wanting to do this for a while. You do have this sort of let's raise the level of, of modeling. Um, the the um, the bench work goes from 40 inches high in Intrac, which is good for viewing from by little people, to 50 inches, which is really good for viewing by the operator. Yeah, and I would say half the modules in this Evanston show were were kind of in process, but the other half that were done were just very very good models. Mm. You know now. You always have to remember, as one of my friends said many years ago, a module is a train layout that goes for a car ride. Yes. <laughs> and, you ha- you know, there's certain concessions you have to make because you're um, you're moving the thing around all the time. And Certainly. it's got to be robust. And, uh, but, yeah, so I'm pretty involved with that because I think modular modeling allows me to have big dreams and visions and also to there's this, the whole community aspect to it and it, i don't have the space or the time or the kind of priority right now to build a home layout mm. yeah it, it does and it's catching on a lot in in scale it's, it's farther along in ho this fremo standard Certainly. which basically most standard basically just says you know you you have to have a certain thing at the endpoints on the module ends but in, in in between there you can do anything anything you want in terms of length or straight or crooked or Certainly. you know it's very very free form that way but it's catching on it's particularly strong in the west california mm-hmm. is where there are lots of groups and in the midwest we don't have much in the east yet but that's what we're mm-hmm. trying to change now do you think covid changes us too do you think just the nature mm-hmm. of lockdowns and i mean certainly we've had a few callers in various you know primo dimensions are talking about the space that they have and certainly when i look at my podcasting room it's perfectly dimensioned particularly with some curves for taking maybe three freebo ho modules at a pinch and probably yeah. quite comfortably four or five uh, n at a pinch do you think it's just people are moving people you know are in shutdown situations so they have the perfect amount of time to work on modules i mean what are your thoughts on the new normal and the modular community well that's a good question and i know that i've I thought that through any that would be specific about about modules. I do think that, as many people have reported, having more time and more focus and maybe a little bit more flexibility because you're not doing two hours of commuting every day. Mm, yes, to do some modeling. I've, I've worked at home for a long time, but even I found over the last couple of years in particular that what I'll, I'll lean into work for a couple hours and then I'll run out and spend 15 minutes putting another coat of faculty yes. on these things. And, that, and then I'll come back and work and I'll go back and forth. In fact, I did that today. I, I feel like there's it's been a kind of a mental health booster in a little bit. 
The thing I guess that's different about modular railroading over building a, a home layout, which maybe it wouldn't be true if it was a, a smaller, like a shelf layout, is that, you know, it's just a finite amount. You know, mm. now I made the mistake, I kept adding and adding and adding, but there's no reason <laughs> I couldn't do something that was just a, you know, a few feet at a time. And I, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, oh, well, that's, you know, when you, when you look in your space, whether it's a, a basement or whether it's your office or your podcasting room, when you look at your space and you start looking around and going, oh, I could get two modules in over there. Well, that's just a sign that the disease is, is taking over. <laughs> you start looking at all spaces in terms of, uh, I could I could shoehorn something in there, you know. <laughs> well, I think this house is very strange. The active rooms, like the bedrooms and these kind of things, are smaller than our house in California. But the open spaces are huge. They're vast. You know, we're talking, you know, 40 feet in any given direction in some of them. And you just think, given the sympathy of at least maybe one child or a wife or something like that, I could certainly start utilizing these spaces, which are really ideally suited for, you know, HO, potentially even O in some of the spaces. So, yeah, it is one of these things. And I think modules work in that light too, because you can build it in a small space and then export it to a a larger space given the sympathy of at least one other family member. Yeah, I, you know, I have quite a number of friends that have both. They have modules that become a part of their home layout or they have modules that turn into a shelf layout. So that's pretty clever when you can figure out how to do both of those things. I haven't quite figured that part out. But to be able to contribute a little piece to something that then becomes big, this Evanston thing was... As, as everybody believes, the largest in-scale Fremo layout that's ever been built. Mm. Now, there have been some in Europe because the Fremo standard has been... The Japanese might have a record on that. Don't underestimate the Japanese in this light, too. I've heard stories, I don't know the final dimensions, but I've heard stories where hundreds of in-scale modules can come together and you know, large holes and these kind of things. So the Japanese and you know sort of invented uh, what we call P-Track today, the uh, table plot, which is a third model modeling standard for N scale. Yes, and I know they've built some really really huge. That's another really interesting dimension of modular railroading, thinking about a module that you can just sort of throw on the back seat of your car and you don't yeah. need. One of my friends said we don't we don't all have minivans anymore, so. <laughs> The idea that you could even get this down even smaller is a lot of people as well. And T-Track has, I think, suffered in, in the minds of some as being sort of toy-like, but it's come a long way. And in fact, at the 2018 NMRA National in Kansas City, mm. it was E-Track module using that uh, Unitrack track that has the Center. sort of plastic. Yep. Uh, that won the best of show. Gosh. So put the time and effort into it, you mm. can really make it quite nice even in that standard as well. So, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you for calling in, John. I, I just wanted to say hi and, and uh, throw in my thanks to you for getting back to it. And uh, I know you've had plenty on your... Did, did you launch a podcast since we last spoke as well? I didn't. I keep, I keep trying to get there uh, <laughs> and listening to the various ones that are out there. And I heard the mention of the crossing gate here just a minute ago, which I find to be really good as well. It's interesting that different podcasts... And you've been saying this for a number of years, haven't you? They have a different angle, a different yeah. kind of feel them, a different style. And uh, I find I get a lot out of one and I get something completely different out of it. I mean, one. So, I've always advocated that people should think about what their listeners, like think about who, who are your ideal listeners? What, what are the kinds of people you want to attract? Because that's really what you, I mean, particularly if you have an open mic 
system like Model Raw Radio, but even even my closed mic podcasts that I do, I always like, what would the ideal listener be? How can I create something that would keep the ideal listener interested? Um, and I, I think that's exactly what Lionel Strang has done perfectly with A Modelist Life. I think certainly that's what Tom Gazier and co have done. They've just thought about, you know, thought about it slightly differently, taken a slightly different take on because you look at commercial podcasting information and I don't take it from that direction. But I think, yeah, I'm really interested in seeing the next generation of bottle railroading podcasts. And certainly a lot of them are on video now. I mean, I think the video direction has been really interesting as well. And, you know, it has the ability to create characters and stars in the hobby. I put out the um, Marty McGurk <laughs> joke about uh, Jerry Springer. But yeah, it's interesting that this medium just has the potential to uh, both make new interesting folks in the hobby, but also rise the hobby in a very potentially different direction uh, than the hobby has been historically. If you look at Model Railroader, you know, it's a very focused particular kind of publication, and I would never look to replace Model Railroader's readership. But I think there are so many other folks in the hobby, and the international perspective of the hobby is oftentimes lost which is why it's so great to have people in australia and people in the uk and canada and us and uh, even we have a number of callers who i don't actually know where they're from we had anders verden on last recording and he's in sweden but some of these folk i don't actually know where they are on this planet they just have a completely different perspective on the hobby which is wonderful um, I, I couldn't agree with you more just uh, the diversity of people and probably one of the coolest things that's happened to me in the last 18 months is i made so many friends that aren't you know local club guys uh, yeah yeah, the sort of getting involved in, in MRAX a little bit and Certainly. doing some of that got me sort of connected to that team and that leads to another thing and, and just the whole democratization of something here, mm. right? So you, I found myself reaching out for people that I've heard on podcasts and saying, hey, you talked about thus and such, could you tell me more? And then you get into this kind of weird thing where it's like, we're actually friends now and we don't know each other. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have some very, very close friends that, I, yes. you know, but but I I've never seen them in person. Yes, <laughs> it's a it's a new it's a whole new world. It's particularly cool to actually sit in their houses as well. I uh, you know have them cook you dinner, just meet them, and realize actually, as you say, that these are friends that you've created through no you know physical contact, no standard human connection. You've just pushed out air particles, and they've heard the air particles and. They've been receptive to that as well. Look, as you well know, John, I can talk about this topic for hours. Um, let us just leave it there. Um, thank you very much for calling back in. I'm really enjoying, you know, reconnecting with people after this uh, brief break. But unfortunately, I have to get back to the girls. Not unfortunately, but I have to get back to the girls. Hey, one last thing. Say John Doring. John Doring. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as far as T-Track, quick thing. The um, achievement program, the scenery certificate, requires a backdrop. Most T-Track modules, Freemo, don't have a backdrop. Can we amend the requirements to allow judging without a backdrop, but allow another, say, 50% more area? In other words, more square feet in exchange for not requiring the backdrop. Just something to toss out for the AP program. And now, um, with respect to T-Track, I think you can put a backdrop on T-Track and, you know, maybe a third of them do. So that's not as hard, I think. You're right about Fremo. And I've wondered about that myself. But one thing I've seen is some really, really nice 
photographs of Fremo modules. They, they just took them outside, so they used the natural backdrop. There you go. Uh, that's, that's nothing beats the real thing. I can't really speak for the AP rules specifically, but I can empathize with what you're saying. And as, when I get through with my Fremo N-scale modules, too, I'm going to be really, really proud of them, and I'm going to be looking for angles. <laughs> You know, right. how do I get these to count, if you will, so to speak, even though exactly. they... Yeah. One, one okay. thing I, I, I've seen when we've had Fremo setups in the past for HO, we've actually had one member from uh, the New England area. He would have a um, little artist folder full of uh, backdrops, and he would just clamp them onto the side of the, the module yeah. and kind of just do a zoomed-in photograph and maybe have a little spotlight, uh, battery-powered LED light or to help uh, shed a little bit more light on the area to take the photograph. But that's what he would do. And a lot of times when he would post on the HO Scale Fremo Facebook groups, it was these photographs at a show with a clamped-on photo backdrop to do the photograph. And, you know, he had so many different photo backdrops. It would He had enough that would almost kind of match any type of scenery on the module. So that that's one thing that you could do temporary if you wanted to do a photo but the outdoor photography, especially what, what Ken Patterson does, and if you ever watch some of his videos on YouTube, where he explains on how he layers with just pieces of foam painted or with ground cover to simulate distant hillsides. And, of course, his location there in the south of St. Louis on the bluffs of the Mississippi uh, is just outstanding for outdoor photography. And one day I hope to maybe take some of my, my modules out there to his house to do some photography. Yeah, great idea. We took some pictures at the uh, Evanston show with a professional photographer who brought kind of a green screen and put them behind the modules and took the photos. And I, I suspect they're going to do the same thing. They're going to sort of paste in some appropriate backdrops where they can. So I don't know, Mike. It's a really, really good question. Uh, we'll have to we'll have to kind of work on that on the AP thing because I think we're both being the same. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like we all are all on the same page. You know, we're not trying to get something for nothing, but we're trying to make an accommodation for, you know, just that you have different scales. You are requirement for different square feet of scenery. There's nothing wrong with making a different type of accommodation. Interesting. I, I think we should let Tom close out the show. And then uh, <laughs> uh, I think yeah. even if he drops out of the call, I believe the way Skype works is yeah, you can all sound. Go on. Yep. And Feel free yeah, to sound. We can carry this on after uh, Tom closes out the show. Thank that you, Mike Slater. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you, John, for calling in, and thank you for uh, for raising controversial topics where seemingly no controversy was there prior. But anyway, John, pleasure chatting as always. Thank you very much. Well, folks, this is going to be a theme, I think, for the future. In fact, I should say, with regards to the month of no, uh, October and November, our main day nanny who's here currently is leaving for Kansas City, Missouri, of all places. I think I might have mentioned this prior recording. So we don't, we've got kind of temporary folks that we're not really sure what's going to happen with. And unfortunately, that impacts when I record next. So my hope is when my wife is back from SoCal that we can organize when we have the uh, day nanny in and when I can get a day nanny in specifically on Saturday so I can record Model Rail Radio. Um, so that's why the site doesn't have the uh, upcoming times, but uh, I'll, I'll endeavor to try and fix that so folks can call in and I'll give people plenty of notice. Thank you everyone very much for calling in today. It was wonderful catching up with you all. Uh, a number of folk who, yeah, I haven't had a chance to chat with for a few months. 
Not that I'm complaining, but it's good to get back in contact with folks. And thanks also to everyone for listening in. Good afternoon.